Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Season 2 of Sports Legends of the Carolinas. I'm your host, Scott Fowler, sports columnist for the Charlotte Observer, where I've worked since 1994. And as always in this podcast, I'm seeking out some of my favorite sports legends from across the Carolinas and hearing the stories behind their rise to iconic status. This season on Sports Legends, we're doing things a little differently. Instead of visiting with you all every week, we're spacing out our season to bring you these legends throughout the sports calendar. NFL Hall of Fame draft experts, basketball stars, NASCAR standouts, controversial NBA team owners, you'll hear from them when you want to the most. If you're new here, welcome, and be sure to check out the first season of Sports Legends of the Carolinas. All episodes, including the subscription Apple Podcast content, are now available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. For this episode of Sports Legends of the Carolinas, we're thrilled to be in a Charlotte steakhouse called Steak 48, sitting across from Greg Olson, the former Carolina Panther Pro Bowl tight end and current Fox Sports lead NFL analyst. And there's the pass into the end zone, and it's caught for the touchdown, Greg Olson. After nine years as a Panther, Greg has had a meteoric rise in the broadcasting world. Alongside play-by-play announcer Kevin Burkhart, he will call his first Super Bowl on February 12th, broadcasting the Kansas City Chiefs versus the Philadelphia Eagles before a viewing audience that will exceed 100 million people. Thanks for listening. And now, here's Greg Olson on Sports Legends of the Carolinas. Greg, welcome to the show. Appreciate it, Scott. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, well, first of all, let's talk a little bit why we're here at Stake 48. You have an awesome charity event coming up here in Charlotte, I believe on February 27th. And so tell us about that. Yeah, we're really fortunate. Uh, for anyone who lives in Charlotte, the, the most popular restaurant probably by far right now currently is Stake 48. You can come in here any day of the week and probably run into a half dozen or so people that you know and um it's really been an unbelievable kind of addition to the culinary kind of experience here in Charlotte. And um, about a year and a half ago, um, some of the owners, um, Oliver and, and his team here at State 48, approached us. They were aware of our work with Levine Children's Hospital through our program, The Hardest Yard. And they offered up a similar event that they've done at some of their other locations, uh, specifically out in the Scottsdale area, and offered us the restaurant and they said we will provide the food we will provide the restaurant um all we ask is that you take care of our servers and and our team and we would love you guys to bring all of your nearest friends donors um companies that you work with and we will have an unbelievable night we'll give them a top of the, you know top of the line dinner experience and all of the money gets donated to the hardest yard which of course we pass through to the families we serve at Levine Children's Hospital. And last year for our first year, we had never really done something like this, kind of a high-end kind of dinner intimate experience. And to say it was a success would be would not be doing it justice. So we are fortunate enough now to be doing it again. As you mentioned, uh, we're doing it here in a couple of weeks on the 27th of February. We always do it in February because it's heart month. Um, so that, that, last, uh, that last Monday in February, we'll be here again at State 48 and We'll have 250 of our closest friends just having a great night, dinner, drinks, tell our story of what the hardest yard is, and at the end of the day, be able to give a pretty good check to our to our families at Levine Children's Hospital that we continue to serve. 
And for those who don't know your personal connection to The Hardest Yard, explain. So The Hardest Yard is a, is a program that my wife, Kara, and I started um, back in 2013. So shortly after I was traded here to, to, Charlotte, uh, to Carolina to, to live in Charlotte, uh, my wife and I found out that our, at the time, yet-to-be-born son, TJ, um, we were pregnant with him shortly after my first year, so 2012. He was diagnosed with a very serious heart condition uh, prior to being born uh, called hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Um, he was born with a non-fully functioning heart, and through the subsequent years to follow, um, he's had he had four open heart surgeries, and then the fall of 2021, he had a heart transplant. And so the Hardest Yard is our family's program that we run through our foundation. Uh, we provide inpatient services, outpatient services to the cardiac families. We built a 25,000 square foot Hardest Yard Congenital Heart Center, which is attached um, over at Levine Children's Hospital here in Charlotte, which serves all the different subspecialties of cardiac, pediatric cardiac care um, here with Levine Children. So it's something that we've been doing now almost for 10 years that we're about to celebrate our 10th anniversary here in a couple weeks. And uh, we're very fortunate for the community support. We're so fortunate that the program has continued to grow. We just launched our second facility out in Charleston at um, MUSC Children's Hospital. So we are kind of spreading our wings and, and trying to reach across more of the Carolinas. And uh, it's all due to, to events like this and, and just continued community support. TJ's struggle, you you and uh, your wife have been very public with, and I understand he's doing well. So give us an update on TJ now. Yeah, TJ's doing great. Uh, so last summer, he celebrated his one-year anniversary. So he's about a year and a half out now and playing, tried basketball for the first time this year through school. That was something that he never could really do. It was a little too cardio you know, dependent and, and exhausting for him. So he's playing on his school's basketball team, which has been really fun for him. He had never played before, um, plays baseball. He's done that the most. Um, it just always worked with his, you know, with his abilities and what he was able to do and whatnot. But he is as happy. He is as healthy. He is growing. He's big and strong. He's a uh, he's doing really well. We continue to get really good checkups. Um, when we go back, we're, we're just his cardiac team here in Charlotte, the, just from the day he was born, from the surgeons to the nurses to the team, and then of course now his transplant cardiology team that that follows and handles his care for here on out is just is truly remarkable. And the fact that we were we were able to get all of that high level, very critical care without ever leaving more than fifteen minutes away from our house um, is something that's not lost on us, and it's a big reason why we spend so much time and effort in this community to continue to elevate that care and continue to elevate the access to that care for people around the Carolinas to let them know that I hope they never need Levine Children's. I, I hope they never step foot in it. But if unfortunately they ever needed that for their son or daughter, the fact that it's in our own backyard, we learned firsthand just how how precious that is. It's remarkable, really, what y'all have done. And, and that, that facility, which I've been inside, is just fantastic. And he is in middle school now? How old is he? He's in fourth grade. Yeah. Okay. So he's still in lower school. He's 10. That's amazing. Okay. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. So you're calling your first Super Bowl in the uh, broadcast booth, at least. You're only 37 and you're about to do something it takes so many broadcasters decades to achieve. So if they ever achieve it at all. So are you nervous about it? You know, I, I would be lying if I said I wasn't, I, I don't know if nervous is the right word, but you're kind of anxious, like you're ready for it to be here. Um, you know, you have so many people that offer you up advice. 
Um, you know, I remember getting advice before I called the Thanksgiving Day game this year. And, you know, the audience is a little bigger. We had 40 some odd million people watching that game. And you get a lot of advice from the, the folks on the team that have called a lot of big games and our producer and director and, and some of the members of the crew. And, you know, that's like your first big checkbox. And then you kind of go throughout the course of the year. I've been, I've been fortunate that we've called a lot of big games. Um, you know, just last week called my first ever playoff game up in Minnesota um, when the Vikings lost to New York. So I've been able to kind of slowly, gradually build calling bigger and bigger games. But as as we know, there is nothing like the Super Bowl, the entire experience. Um, and, and you're right. I think the fact that I'm able to do it in such a short period of time is less a testament to me and just more of a testament to Fox has believed in me before I even said I wanted to do this. You know, I was a player back in 2017 and people lost their minds because on my bye week, they gave me the opportunity to call a game, which coincidentally happened to be up in Minnesota where I just made my playoff debut. So I've been very fortunate. They believed in me from the very beginning and um, I've had some really cool opportunities in TV and, you know, none bigger though than this year being on the A team, being on the lead crew and obviously going through the entire playoffs, NFC championship, and then culminating as you mentioned, out in Arizona for the Super Bowl. So nervous, anxious, excited. I would say it's kind of a blend of all of those. So explain something to me. So you're on the A-team, as Fox terms it, right? And this group of people who travel from city to city each week, and most of them have been together forever, yeah. right? Um, and you and Kevin are new to it this year. So Tom Brady retires, then what happens? Well, that's the $375 million question. Um, and to be honest with you, I don't have the answer. I don't even know right now if Fox has the answer. I think um, we knew going in exactly what the situation was. I was on the B crew last year with Kevin, uh, Joe and Troy ended up leaving to go to ESPN Monday Night Football and it left an opening with the Fox A crew, you know, an opening that hadn't been there in, in over 20 years. And, and like you said, the the team there had been together for a long time. You know, Aaron Andrews and Tom Rinaldi and the producer and director, they've been calling Super Bowls and doing the lead crew now for for two decades. And for Joe and Troy to leave and have that opening was a very unique situation. Um, Kevin early on was told that he was going to be the lead play-by-play guy. And um, the question was who was going to be in the seat next to him. And we had communications all along. We were always in the running. We were always a contender. They were, <clears throat> like I said, they've been very – pro Greg Olson from the very beginning. But at the same time, I'd only done one full season. And while they were happy with how it went, there's a big difference between doing it for 20 years and and maybe having a little bit of a bigger profile and a bigger name. And that's just the reality of it. So when Tom Brady, the situation with Tom came up and he signed a contract, even though he was going to play another year, at least it made things a little interesting. And obviously they they signed me to to do it in the meantime. And I hope Tom continues to play, but I knew what I was getting into. I, I understand the reality of the situation. It, if it's just one year, make the most of it. Have some unbelievable experiences. Call some of the biggest games in NFL history. And uh, that's how I've looked at it from the beginning. And I can't control what Tom does. I can't control what the, the powers to be at Fox do. But I can control how good of a job I do. I can control how hard I prepare and, and the energy and the fun that I bring to the broadcast. And uh, I'll let the rest of it just kind of settle itself out when it's all done. And you, uh, I was reading somewhere uh, the, the story of how you addressed the elephant in the room the very first time in September when you had Tom for a game, right? I know you've had him multiple, what, four yeah. times or multiple something times now. now yeah. But that first time, uh, 
How did you go about that since both of you are very aware of this unusual dynamic? Yeah. And and I think that was the thing talking with with Kevin leading up to the game. I said, you know, it's I, I, we got to just just address it. Right. It's going to be I don't know how Tom feels. I, I never spoken to him about it. But, you know, listen, he's we all understand like I'm doing a production meeting with him and potentially he could be taking my job. And it's a, you know, it's a weird it's a weird dynamic. Yeah. So we were just sitting there and we were just kind of kind of shooting the shit a little bit. And uh, we were talking and he was asking us how we were doing. And I was just like, you know, Tom you should just leave this TV stuff to me, man. I was like, it's miserable. You're not going to lie. And he got a kick out of it. And just, I think it just kind of ripped the bandaid off and just let everyone know, like, we're not going to take this, make more of this than it is. We're not going to make it too serious. Um, Everyone has a job to do. Everyone makes decisions. I understand it's Tom Brady. And if you have a chance to get him, you try. And uh, I think, I think everyone took a little bit of a deep breath and was like, okay, let's just do this meeting, prepare the game. And uh, it's not that big of a deal. You uh, you are the rare tight end who has become a, a really broadcasting superstar. Most lead analysts uh, traditionally are quarterbacks, right? Your profile, while in Charlotte is enormous, nationally maybe isn't because of the position that yeah. you've played. Yeah, and I always knew getting into, into TV and, and specifically calling the games, the reason that I was drawn to calling the games, frankly, versus some of the studio stuff is the studio stuff is a lot more resume dependent. Right. You want to sit at one of those big desks. You're wearing gold jackets. You got multiple all pros. You're you're typically a quarterback. It's just, you know, there's a little bit of a different dynamic to those studios as they put those crews together. And and frankly, I knew for me, the only way I was ever going to ascend to being in that top category, that a crew or that top studio show was going to be by just being good at it. Right. It was not going to be that I was going to get the seat because of playing quarterback on a big time, you know, out of New York City and playing in Super Bowls and winning. You know, it's just that was not that was not me. And um, I was OK with that. But I think the fact the reason why I was drawn to calling games is not everyone can do it. I think we've learned that over the last couple of years where prominent players or prominent people have tried to get into the booth and they learn very quickly. It's hard. Yeah. There's a lot going on. You got to talk for three hours. A lot of it's off the just winging it. And you got to make sure you're clear and coherent and you make good points and Everyone's a critic. So it's uh, it's not for everyone. And I think that was what drew, drew me to it. And I knew that as long as I was good, I could ascend because I could maybe pass by guys who had better playing careers or had more prominent names or played quarterback or played in bigger markets, whatever the situation is. So that's why I feel like I've been able to do it. Um, I think the fact that I did play tight end actually helps me. I think, you know, I, I was required to learn the game. I was required to study the game and see the game from a lot different perspective than all the other quarter positions, including quarterback, right? You you watch the quarterback broadcasts and, and these guys are incredible at what they do, but so often the game is told through the eyes of a quarterback and the ball. Well, there's a lot other things going on and typically the viewer at home sees the ball. Typically the viewer at home is following the ball, but show me the protections and show me what the defense is doing. Like give me some other layers that make this game as interesting as we all know it to be. And um, that's been something that, we've really tried to lean into is like bring a whole collective fun, comprehensive learning experience, but also keeping it fun and light and not boring people to death. And I think for the most part, people have responded pretty well to that. And uh, I think my position has actually helped me. Yeah. And you're so good at diagnosing. That's what I, I don't see how you're doing it in real time, but you, and I'm not saying this just because we've known each other a long time, but I think you're doing so well, partly because 
You're so quick. And, and, but you know, almost sometimes I know you've mentioned before almost too fast, right? You have so many thoughts that the, you have to, you're told every broadcast, I think you said somewhere to slow down a little bit, right? Yeah. I have a, I have a kind of a running joke with my, with my producer, um, Richie Zions. He's been, he's been calling, he's been the producer of the lead crew now for 20, 20 something years. He's called a million Super Bowls. He was with Joe and Troy for forever and uh, worked with Madden, you know, back in his day. So he's a really well, you know, well, highly respected, highly thought of producer. And we kind of have a joke like the game hasn't started until like in the first three plays of the game, he tells me to slow down. <laughs> and and something I've really had to learn. And this was something that I had to learn kind of as a player, too, is, you know, you see, you, you see a little, see a lot. Right. And the the inverse of that is you see a lot, you see a little. And I think as a broadcaster, there's so many cool things happening on every single play. There's five interesting talking points you can give on every play in the NFL. There's so many, at least in my mind. But the reality is that doesn't make for great TV. That doesn't make for a great viewing experience. So I I have to make sure I'm mindful that I can't get every thought I have on every single snap in in 15 seconds without just rambling on and on and on and just driving people crazy. So that there is a little bit of, okay, even if you think it's great, this might not be the time. Put it in your back pocket. There's three more hours to go. Yeah. You'll get back to it. You know, and oh, yeah, and that's yeah. been uh again, a lot of this is just a great learning lesson for me. And uh, but that's what makes it so fun. Like it's every week I learn and experience something different that you don't know until you know. And uh, that's what's been so exciting and been so enjoyable about the process. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. Let's go to the Panthers for a little bit. Um, so as we're doing this right now, they're in the midst of a, a hiring a head coach. Maybe by the time it airs, they will have hired one. But whoever the Panthers' new head coach is, what do you think they have to do to succeed in a place where they haven't made the playoffs now for five years? Yeah, and, it, and it's hard because obviously living here, um, you know, my kids are fans. This is all my kids know. My entire career, as far as they're concerned, was in Carolina. This is their home. This is the kids they go to school with. This is the radio they listen to. This is this is our home. So, like, you know, we want the Panthers to do well. We are going to forever be fans of the Panthers and cheer for them. And we want the city and I want my kids selfishly and, you know, their friends and their schools to get back to what it was for those five or six years where on Friday kids wore Panther jerseys and that stadium was packed and there was no, what are you going to do on Sunday? Like you were going, if there was a home game, you were coming to the Panthers game, right? Like I want that for our city. I want that for our kids. I want that for all of us selfishly, like for during the fall, this is a Panthers town and and really have that buzz that we had, you know, when, when we were running there for a couple of years. So I think they've got to come in. Obviously Wilkes did it last year, which is just kind of steady the boat, make things baseline, get things back to square one. They got to find a long-term quarterback. They've got to find, you know, what does that look like? Continue to develop offensively. So, I mean, football-wise, there's a lot of things they have to continue to do. But first and foremost, they need a great leader, and they need someone that's going to come in and represent the Carolina Panthers brand well and make the Panthers a big deal again in this city. It would be nice to see them being a big deal again because you're right. It's it's feels like it's been a while. Um, so let's go to – one, the best season the Panthers have ever had, 2015. 
and that Super Bowl. I still feel like watching that, honestly, Greg, and I rewatched it at some point not too long ago, that you guys actually were a better team overall than Denver. I don't know if you agree with that There's or no not. There's no question in my mind about that. Yeah. So what happened? And if you, in the benefit of hindsight, if you could play it again, what what would you change? Man, we could do a whole episode. I, I've played that game. I've played that game back. I've played those two weeks between the NFC Championship and that and walking off the field at, at the Super Bowl out in Santa Clara. I've played that game back probably a thousand times in my brain. You know, I think first and foremost, I, you know, I think if we played them ten times, we'd probably win seven. I wouldn't say we'd win nine or ten. I mean, I, but I think we'd win more than half. I think we were better. I think we were more balanced. I think their defense was dominant. I think our defense was dominant. We had the number one offense in the league that year. We were averaging 30 points a game in the playoffs. We scored 30, and then we scored 40-something in the NFC Championship, 40, 44, 45, something like that. So, I mean, we were rolling, and um, our offense was better than their offense. Their defense was probably equally as dominant as ours was that year. So, got to give them credit. And at the end of the day, their defense – had a bigger impact on the game because of the the touchdown on the sack, because of the forced fumbles. And for as good as our defense played that day, our offense was so bad, uncharacteristic of that season, that our defense just couldn't do enough to, to carry us. And, um, you know, for as bad as we played, I, I remember vividly standing there in the fourth quarter when we were down one score. It felt like everything had gone wrong. We had, t- we had sacks, we had strip sacks, we had it fumbles. We had everything go against us and we got like two or three possessions in a row. We got the ball yeah, and it was like, we need one score. We need one score. And, um, we just never could get it. So, I mean, I, I could, what would you do? If you only could do one thing though, what would you do different? Like, should you have max protected more? I mean, what, what would have you know, changed I, something or if yeah, you, you could have, I think we did. I, I don't yeah. think there was anything from a schematic, you know, thing that gave us a disadvantage. Right. I think, it was, you know, you hear coaches say all the time, you know, missed opportunities and there's all these cliches that coach speak and whatnot. But when you look at how that game broke down, right, we got the ball first. We first play of the game. We ran a very similar play that we ran um, against Seattle, had a shot, couldn't quite block it right. Then on third down, I caught a pass a yard and a half short of first down. I'm supposed to run a 12 yard route. I want to say it was like third and nine. For whatever reason, I ran an eight and a half yard route. Caught it, got hit in the back and tackled, came up fourth and half a yard, a yard, we punt. They take they so they had scored. We got the ball back. We hold them, we get the ball back. Koch has that ball down the middle of the field. They rule it incomplete. I know there's a lot of debate about whether he caught it or not. And then I want to say a player or two later, we got strip sacked. Yeah, um yeah. you know, so it just you just look at the you know, the the series the sequence of events of that game. Um, you know, then we're rolling and we fumble. Then just things that were just very untraditional of how we had played that year. And um, and what makes the NFL so special and what makes the NFL so unique is, you know, in all the other major sports, if you have a bad day, you get them tomorrow. I'm talking in the playoffs and the yeah, championships. Yeah, you get them tomorrow. You get one shot. And I think that's what makes the NFL playoffs so special. And that's what makes the NFL, the Super Bowl, so unique is it's not as – it's not – a, a totality of different games where you say, oh, I had a seven, I'll get you four, right? I'm sitting here saying if we played them 10, we might win six or seven. We're 0 for 1, and they're 1 and 0, and that's right. it. And um, yeah. 
we peaked in the NFC Championship. You know, we played that day. Everything we called worked. Every play we ran was open. Every ball that was contested, we caught. Everything worked, and it was the exact opposite in the Super Bowl. And it's a tough pill to swallow, but that's your biggest regret, I assume, in your career losing that game. Yeah, would you I say? Mean, I think yeah. everybody looks back on their career entirely different if we win that game. From Ron to Cam to all of us. You know, to have Super Bowl, you know, I think when I think back to my career, like that's the only thing I wasn't able to accomplish, right? Individual goals and production and played in some great games and played in multiple NFC championships, won one, lost one. You know, all of a sudden, if you put Super Bowl champion, we arguably would have had the greatest season in NFL history. I mean, I know the Dolphins went undefeated back in 70 or whatever, 72, but we would have been the first 18 win Super Bowl champion in NFL history. And uh, we were there. We had a shot. We just didn't finish it. Bears must get to the 45 for a first down. Cutler fires downfield. And the catch is made by the tight end, Greg Olson, for a Bears touchdown. You scored, I think I look back at this, 63 touchdowns, 14 years in the league. What was your very favorite touchdown you ever scored? That's a good question. I think I have – I'm going to answer you. I'm, I'm not dodging the question, but I am going to answer it a little more. Okay. with a little more nuance. So there's like different different touchdowns tell different stories to me. So my first ever touchdown, so I go back to 2007. I'm, I got drafted by the Bears, training camp, last preseason game, preseason game four. I bang my knee on the ground in Soldier Field and I, and I tear my PCL on my knee. So my first four games, two I miss, two I don't do anything. Game five, we're going Sunday night football in Lambeau Field. Brett Favre, primetime game, you name it. And I catch my first ever touchdown in Lambeau Field. We win the game. I had six catches. And I was like, all right. That was like my – I had a tough start, first-round pick. The kid doesn't play. You know how that goes. Right, right. And finally, like, have my moment where I'm like, okay, like, I can do this. Can do I can do this. That one sticks out to me just because the first of anything means yeah. a lot. Then as I go through my – you know, I go through my career, I think of, you know, my first ever playoff game in Chicago against the Seahawks. The first third down in the game, I have a 50-something yard touchdown in the snow. Soldier Field, we end up winning pretty big there. My first ever playoff game, we win. Um, I think here, obviously, the 2015 catch against Seattle, up in Seattle, just because it wasn't a playoff game, wasn't the Super Bowl. I want to say it was like week six or seven. It was early in the year. But to me, that was like that win itself, not the catch. The win itself was very symbolic of like, we've turned the corner. Because y'all could never beat Seattle. We could never beat yeah. Seattle. We always gave them a run. We always right. gave them everything we had. It just, we never could get over the hump. So that that game, um, that same year, my the catch in the Seattle playoff game in the first half, you know, was probably one of my better, just pure catches of my career. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot that stick out for, you know, a variety of different reasons. Some catches had great significance to me personally, some had great significance and an impact of a really important game. Um, but those are the ones that like kind of come to mind. You're a favorite NFL player of all time. You know, when I was a kid growing up, granted, I grew up in New Jersey. So I grew up in Giants country and, and all the Giants coaches, a lot of them lived in our town and their kids played sports with us and were on our teams. I grew up a San Francisco 49er fan, Steve, um, Jerry Rice, Steve Young. I was like after the Montana days. So it was, it was Young and, and Rice. I remember every year, probably when I was in middle school, you know, for probably three, four years in a row, I either got a Jerry Rice jersey or a Steve Young jersey. And Jerry Rice was a guy that 
I still to this day, when I see him, I'm, I had a chance to interview him on my podcast and that was like a life circle moment, you know, just, I just always really respected the way he went about it, right? He was, you know, you saw the videos as a kid of him running the hills and how hard he trained and, you know, he wasn't the fastest guy. He wasn't like, I always resonated with that. Like there was something about his effort and his approach that made him, you know, arguably the greatest, one of the greatest players of all time. So he, um, he was, he was the guy, he was the Jersey I was wearing. He was the Jersey I hope was under the tree on Christmas morning. Um, yeah, Jerry was somebody that still to this day I hold in high regard and, that's been for a long time since I was a kid. Find that slant with your eyes. Pass, pass, pass. Right there, don't back up. Where are you going? Hey, can I show you what a slant route looks like? You're running one yard off the ball. Watch me. One, two, three, and run like this. Yeah, speaking of kids, so you, one of the things you and I have in common is I have coached tennis, soccer, and basketball were for my kids at one time or the other. Uh, and you do a ton of that, more than I do even. One, isn't Luke Keekley your defensive coordinator yep. or something? Yep. Yeah, he's under contract. <laughs> what do you sign him for? What does Luke Keekley go for I, these do, days? We do pizza at least once a week. <laughs> I, I get him a lunch. We do a lunch, a coach's lunch meeting every Thursday at a local restaurant. We kind of move it around. So he his compensation is pretty good. Wow. Yeah, it would be hard for anybody to match you that. You can't match yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Especially uh, but, Tepper. He can't match that. <laughs> no way. Right. So what uh, is uh, what do you enjoy the most about that? And, and you're you're a pretty hard-nosed coach, right? Your style is uh, I've, yeah, we get after pretty, pretty intense. Yeah. yeah. You know, well, I, I should say yes to that. I, I This winter, actually, I'm, I'm assisting my daughter's fourth grade basketball team at school. Nice. So I've really found like a new version of myself. Um, it's, it's great. These girls have never played before. They are adorable. They are cute at practice. It's, it's, I'll just say it's unlike anything I've ever done before, but my wife always says it's good for you. That's what she, every time I come home and I'm like, she's like, how was it? And I just take a deep breath. She's like, it's good for you. Um, aside from that team, yeah, we, we we coach our kids hard. And now, especially as we're getting older, my older son's in fifth grade, so he's almost in middle school. My twins are in fourth. But we uh, we coach them hard. And, and the reason we do that, and we're very upfront with the parents, we're very transparent with, with our style and our philosophy is, you know, I find so often that in youth sports, especially in today's day, the people that limit the kids are the adults. The, the people who put you know, constraints and say, okay, they're only capable of this, or they're incapable of doing X, Y, and Z. I always say that might be true, but let's find out. Let's find out how good they can be. And if whatever they end up failing at, that's their ceiling. But let's not put their ceiling before we've ever started practice. Let's not just assume here's what we're capable of doing and just shoot to try to be average. Like, I just... I don't understand that approach. We would never do it in academics. We would never set the curriculum of the year and say, this is all Johnny's capable of learning in math. We should only teach him this. No, you teach him every time you learn one thing, you go to the next and you just keep climbing. So I think the same thing through athletics. I think every kid has a different ceiling. Every kid has different skills, different innate qualities, different level of competitiveness. And that's okay. Not every kid has to be the same, but every kid can be maximized. Every kid can re reach he or she's greatest potential. And often it's hard. And often you have to push them beyond their limits, beyond not so much their limits, their parents' limits. The parents 
what the parents think is capable, what the parents think is reasonable. And 99% of the time at the end of the year, the parents come back and they go, that was incredible. Like in the beginning, I wasn't really sure. thought it was a little much. I thought, and then all of a sudden the light bulb goes off and their kid starts to grow and they start to mature and, the, and they start to see, yes, I am capable of more. Don't hold them back. And oftentimes the, the kid we give back at the end of the season has grown significantly from the kid you gave us at the beginning. And to me, that's the goal. The wins and losses in between that, I always say that's a byproduct of everything we do. We don't seek out to win games. We're going to win just because we're going to. But that's not the ultimate. That's not the first priority. The first priority is how do we grow every player? How do we hold every player accountable? How do we get development and growth and skills? And then we're going to win at the end as a result if we're willing to do all these things along the way. You do football and baseball. Is that the two main yeah, ones? Yeah, that's and, what we spend the most amount of time on. And now obviously too. fourth grade girls yes. basketball, which is. So how are you with uh, umpires or officials? Pretty good. Yeah. Fine. I mean, don't get me wrong. Well, you know, well, I, you know, in football, if they call I I have a philosophy when I'm coaching. And again, this is probably not 100% true because I'm trying to be honest with myself. <laughs> I have a philosophy where I'd say nine out of 10 times it holds true. I do not engage with the other parent, the other team's coaches, their other team's players, the umpires. 99% of my time, energy, messaging, communication is with my players. I will not get into with another umpire or another coach Unless they, unless I feel they've mistreated or disrespected one of the kids on my team. Outside of that, you coach your team. I'll coach mine. At the end, I'll shake your hand and we go about my way. I'm not a big arguer with the other team. I'm not a big arguer over what you do. You want, you do your thing. I'll do mine. That's, I try to go into every game with that approach. Certain coaches want to take it personal. They see us walk in. They want to make their name. They want to. We've had a handful of those situations over where you kind of have to nip it and you have to kind of put an end to it and let them know you're not going to deal with it. But this, like this football season, for example, it was great. We had every coach we played against was awesome. The opposing players and teams after the games coming up and they want Luke to take a picture or us. They were awesome. We competed. Don't get me wrong. We, we tried to beat them by 100 and we tried to get after them. And, but at the end of the game, the other coaches were great. Nobody tried to be a big shot. Nobody tried to, you know, prove it. It was a really, really positive experience, which I wasn't sure going in how it was going to be. Right. Yeah. You never know. I know exactly what you're talking about, but the safest way is definitely to stay with your yeah. own, well, your own nice guys. Right. Yeah. Is you're on opposite sides of the field. That's true. Yeah. The fans are on your stands. Yeah. They're 70 yards away from our fans. It's a long, it's not Basketball gym. You're on the same bench. Granted, we haven't played tons of competitive basketball. We've had our most issues have been in baseball. You know, everyone's there on top of each other. The fields are small. Dugouts are right there. So we've had our fair share of moments here and there. But it's mostly me reacting to how an adult talks to one of our kids. That's that's where I have no patience. Last thing I'll ask you real quickly. Who's the best tight end of all time? I'll tell you what. I think if the trend continues for another couple years, I think – Kelsey's got a shot. I don't think I ever thought anyone would ever catch Tony Gonzalez production-wise. I think there's a lot of people in the conversation with Gronk and and Witten and Gates and Gonzalez. I mean, we've had an unbelievable run of tight ends in the last decade, two decades. Um, 
I always thought Tony would stand apart just because his production and longevity was so it was adequate. I mean, he's second to Jerry Rice. It's crazy when you think of the numbers that Tony was able to put up for as long as he did. But Kelsey's on his way. I mean, Kelsey, seven consecutive 1,000-yard seasons. It's it's really unheard of. And uh, I think people can say, oh, well, can he keep doing it? They said that after he got four. And now he's at seven. So if anyone can do it, if anyone can match or pass Gonzalez's production, I think it's Travis. I think just what he's able to do, the way he can take over a game, um, I think he's got a shot. Right now, I'd say it's probably Tony or Gronk or I'd say it's kind of that that era, those two guys. Um, but I think Travis, when it's all said and done, I think Travis could pass everybody by. Well, thank you so much, Greg Olson, for your time and your thoughtfulness today. Best of luck at the Super Bowl. Uh, This is Sports Legends of the Carolinas. Join us again next time. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. That was great. Thanks so much for listening to Sports Legends of the Carolinas, a production of the Charlotte Observer. This show is produced by Lou May Ali Sally, Jeff Siner, and Cotta Stevens. The sports editor of the Charlotte Observer is Lydia Craver, and the executive editor is Raina Cash. Davin Coburn is McClatchy's Director of Audio. For lots more sports content and to continue supporting this kind of work, please visit charlotteobserver.com and consider a digital subscription. And connect with me on Twitter at Scott underscore Fowler or email at sfowler at charlotteobserver.com. See you next time.